Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's TXF TV broadcast. My name is Henry Nicol, and I'm a content manager here at TXF. And I'm delighted to be joined today by two familiar faces in Mr. Tom Dunn, chairman of supply chain finance provider Orbium, and Mr. Peter McKillop, editor-in-chief at Climate and Capital Media. Some of you may recall that Tom and Peter joined us back in March for an episode in which they discussed the dawn of the climate economy. Well, a lot has happened since then, not least COP26 has been and gone. And now is the perfect time to bring you the second instalment in this series of discussions on the climate economy. Today, today, Tom and Peter will be reflecting on the developments of the year, outlining the key takeaways from COP, providing their thoughts on China's climate targets as part of its latest five-year development plan, and finally discussing capital markets and the role which they can play in the climate agenda. So I'm very happy to hand over to Tom and Peter to delve into some of those subjects, and I'll pop back a bit later with any audience questions. So Tom, if I could hand over to you, please. Thanks very much, Henry, and uh, welcome to all of the audience. And, uh, and uh, Peter, it's nice to see you again. It was great to catch up with you in New York um, a couple of weeks ago, kind of the, really marked the end of, uh, of at least a chapter in the pandemic that, uh, that I was able to get back over there. And uh, it, was, uh, it was very good to see you. You're looking very well. Great to see you again. Great to see that we're actually meeting together as humans once again. Exactly. So that was, uh, that was, New York uh, that was is bustling. That was uh, that was uh, that was that was uh, that was very nice. I guess the you know the, as as Henry said in his introduction, you know we 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 got together in in March and had this discussion, and since then nine months have gone by. You know a gestation period for a little baby human, um, and uh, we've it's, we're now regrouping. And you know COP twenty six has 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 been and gone, and I guess. I guess my sense as I think about COP26 was that leave aside some of the logistical challenges, some of the, some of the easy barbs that it was to throw at COP26 with people flying in with, you know, on private jets and entourages and all of this kind of stuff. Let's leave all of that aside and let's kind of look at the, at the content of it. Um, it was better than we might have feared and not as good as we might have hoped. Would that be a fair description yeah it would be and, and 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 let me just think that you can look at it in in a, in two in a two and a half full way or a half empty glass way so and i'll let me get to the half empty because in some ways it really kind of puts it all together um when you think about what's happening with the rays in global the atmosphere the mean temperature of the atmosphere in the earth Think about it as if you were a private equity investor and it's kind of a hockey stick effect. And it was, and what you're seeing since the first COP in 1995 to the COP 26, that, that we are really in the stick part of the hockey uh, stick. And it's, you know, it, it, the, the, the temperature has almost doubled, the meaning that the rise in temperature has doubled. So in that sense, there has been no progress. Um, the, worth, the earth is warmer than it ever has been. This summer we felt the real effects, many for the first time in, in kind of the extreme climate that you had. So in that way, you could argue that very little is being done. However, if you take the half full side, a lot happened in the last nine months that that you know, baby was gestating. There's you know, re extraordinary amounts of capital that's being reallocated 
into kind of sustainability and renewable energy. There's been tremendous movement in the private sector around, um, around accounting standards, sustainability standards, ESG standards. Uh, there has been movement for the first time at COP, and this is hard to believe, where they even mention the word fossil fuel, and they had the they had agreements around methane cuts for natural gas, and you're beginning to see on the national level, particularly in China, the emergence of kind of climate master plans that are fully aligned to their kind of national, you know, regional growth. So on the one hand, we're not, we're still pouring far too much carbon into the air. On the other hand, you know, the private sector in particular is accelerating kind of its reallocation of capital, its focus and its investments towards all, all the new sectors of this so-called climate economy that's beginning to emerge. Yeah, there's, there's some things that we'll kind of put in for now, and we'll come back to a little bit later, and particularly your mm -hmm. comments about, I mean, we're going to talk about China as a separate topic in, in a few mm -hmm. minutes, and we're going to talk about the capital allocation. I've actually got some, I'm going to, maybe we'll, 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 we'll have a slightly robust discussion about what that, uh, what that actually means um, at the moment. But as we kind of think about the Let's sort of go to the end of COP26 and kind of, you know, the, the declaration that came out at the end. Um, mm -hmm. I guess, first of all, what do you think of the, what was your impression about the process? Do you, do you think, do you share the view of our, of our um, uh, the Tokyo colleague and friend, Julian Tett, that kind of the drama around the theatrics around COP26 are very important as an, uh, and as Julian always does, brought in, you know, notions of anthropology and, and, and Papua New Guinea and tribe rights and all of this kind of stuff. Is it important? Is this important signaling? Or is this kind of this, this idea, this, the, 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 the ideas or the notions that get, that get created again, as I use the word again, theatricality of it, that kind of everyone's pulling all-nighters to get to a deal, which actually isn't a deal. There's nothing contractual about what comes out. It's a set of words on a piece of paper that, frankly, really can be, can be at least from a legislative perspective, have no import whatsoever. Do you think it's helpful or do you think it's a distraction? It kind of creates a false sense of drama well, that, 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 that yeah, allows people to not take this as seriously as they should do. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I don't quite agree there. I think it's a bit of, it's, it's a bit of both. Um, I would say that the actual COP process, you know, with the literally thousands of delegations, there was one from the Democratic Republic of Congo that had 350 delegates. The process itself is in serious need of, of you know, review. You had more fossil fuel uh, lobbyists there than the combined total of the eight countries that are most affected by climate change. So there are lots of kind of process issues and that's not surprising. Um, and that's why over 25 years, there's been very little you know, accomplished when it comes to kind of real hard binding practices. I think the area where it's kind of interesting is uh, is kind of the, there are two ways of thinking about it. From a rock concert stand report, it's like the Lollapalooza of climate. 
you had 30,000 people plus packed in, you know, to, to a giant kind of, you know, trade fair like, you know, environments. Another way of thinking about it is like the old caravan of, of of kind of the China Silk Road, where literally tens of thousands of, well, in this case, tens of thousands of people are coming together, talking, doing deals. I mean, for every COT discussion, there were probably a hundred private, you know, webinars and seminars and conferences. Um, so, so in that sense, this this collective um, kind of coming together, this happening around climate, which is only getting bigger by the year, shows to me that people are taking it seriously. However, is it a placebo? Is it make people feel good? Um, I think there's a bit of both because not a whole lot was really accomplished other than just everyone. It's like any conference you go to, you go there, you have a great discussion with people and then you get on a plane and you're off to the next thing. So what really matters, particularly in the next year is kind of how much, how, how they will take what was agreed upon and how will they reconvene in a year from now and actually do something or report back on some of the some of the progress that was made this year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly the next meeting, I think it's in Cairo next year. Um, yeah. It's going to be a very, uh, it's going to be very important because this one, the, the Glasgow meeting was obviously disrupted, you know, had been delayed by the pandemic. Um, and possibly even the fact that it was sort of the first, you know, it was the first time that 30,000 people had gathered um, since before the pandemic, sort of that right. in and of itself created a little bit more party excitement that might have been the uh, the case, just the, the the relief that finally people were back in the same room right. together and the yeah. conference together. Right. Whereas if people just just uh, are a little more measured, it's not quite the excitement of the new going into Cairo. It might uh, it might be. Um, it might be it might be interesting yeah I, I would say one one challenge particularly if you're a journalist or frankly anyone who's covering all this there's such a you know tsunami of information that hits you uh, that in many ways some of the most interesting studies and some of the most interesting discussions were missed by most people and i think there i wish there was a way that this could be kind of more you know laid out over a, a kind of smoother 12-month period because there was just too much information uh, for any human to be able to digest. So again, lots of pros, lots of cons. Um, we yeah. are where we are. Yeah, let's yeah, let's use that kind of that that that, that the notion about the you know, kind of the some of the unreported stories um, to turn to kind of pivot a little bit to someone that obviously was you know, sort of there was there was the headlines about Xi Jinping not coming to Glasgow. Um, but I think that as you and I talked about in New York. You know, the great underreported story, if not totally unreported, is just the, the, the progress that China is actually making and the, and the significant statements. And, and when they make a statement in their five-year plan, they have, you know, the historical record is that five-year plans get followed um, and that statements that go into that are not made lightly. Um, let's have a little bit of a chat about kind of, you know, what they have just put into their most recent sure. plan, because I think it makes really interesting reading and actually illustrates in many respects the way that, you know, we're almost, we could almost think about best practice, not necessarily in terms of what they will end up achieving, but in terms of the way that they are thinking about it. 
Yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, and it was clearly the agreement that that John Kerry and his Chinese counterpart made was in many ways the most important piece of news out of COP. Uh, and it was interesting because that was then followed, on, followed up by the first bilateral discussions between Biden and Xi Jinping. So that is that in itself uh, was, was very, very important. What was really surprising was how surprised people were. And I think that's because the conventional wisdom up to now has been that China is not doing anything when it comes to climate, that all they're doing is exporting coal uh, plants and, and increasing the amount of coal they use. And that is a kind of conventional wisdom. And I think when, uh, when John Kerry was being interviewed by John Micklewaite of Bloomberg, he was kind of, John Micklewaite kind of said that and, and, and John Kerry turned to him and kind of said, well, why don't you read the plan? And the plan is very interesting. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that Xi, it is, it is, Xi Jinping has put um, climate, the, the kind of chi uh, China's response to the climate economy, not only into its next, next five-year plan, but not only into its next other five-year, which means for the minimum 10 years, he is making one of the key planks that will kind of put him into the pantheon of kind of great China leaders. So Mao brought China out of, you know, the chaos of, the, of whatever it was and created communism. If Deng Xiaoping brought commercial ideas and market ideas, uh, Xi Jinping is saying, we are going to not only become energy independent through renewable sources, but we're also going to dominate this new emerging climate economy. And this is a big deal. So they have a plan called one plus N, don't ask me why. But the plan basically uh, is probably the most comprehensive set of guidelines and rules, which is very typical of how China operates on how from a step-by-step -step basis, every industry in China, every, uh, every you know, its power grid, everything that it does is going to start aligning to longer term goals as to how to make themselves not only kind of energy independent, um, which is obviously a, a great long-term goal for China, but also that they really can dominate and you know, own you know, big elements of, the, of this economy. And, and along with a bunch of other key priorities, this is kind of going to be Xi Jinping's legacy. That I think has taken people by surprise. Didn't take John Kerry by surprise, um, and it's why, you know, he was the least surprised of the folks there. He'd been studying this plan for weeks. It was, I think, at the, at the critical point, which is why both countries came together and realized that if China and the United States can't get their act together, um, then we are in, in big trouble. China, frankly, has moved ahead of the United States and me, probably even Europe when it comes to kind of really getting the, the climate master plan, at least in motion. Yeah. No, I... I, I agree with with that and i think what i found particularly interesting about it though was the way that they kind of in terms of the targets they didn't they didn't say we're going to be carbon neutral by i mean they they ultimately they do talk about peak carbon and then carbon neutrality right. but mm -hmm. it, but we all know that kind of having a plan that says carbon neutrality by 2060 is sort of irrelevant because mm -hmm. because if that's all that you say there is just so much there's just what right. i really like about what they've proposed in this five-year plan is how they're addressing the notion of energy and carbon intensity 
in the mm-hmm. economy and that over the next five years that they're going to bring down their carbon intensity so they can continue to grow. What we can't, I mean, I, I think there's a general principle, we can't be asking countries that are still, you know, below the median level of income of the G20 to be to be suppressing their growth rates. That's just, that's that's a hiding to nothing. People are not going to go with that. Yeah. If someone however, says, we're going to carry on growing, but what we're going to be doing as we're growing is we're going to be forever reducing the intensity of the carb, of the footprint that we have, the amount of energy that we are consuming for every dollar of GDP, then that's a really, that feels like something that is, that A, is putting technology and productivity at the heart of this equation. And secondly, it's something that is going to garner domestic support rather than being something that ultimately is going to fail a domestic political test. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a, that is an absolutely spot on comment. And it also reflects the pragmatism of the Chinese plan, but also the Chinese economy. And since both of you, both of us have been kind of in the Asia region since the, uh, since the, you know, for quite some time. In fact, I first visited China in 1979 and, uh, you don't have to do anything but just walk around and look. When they t- when they decide on a plan, they act on that plan, and they act on it in very pragmatic, kind of measurable ways. And anyone who remembers what uh, Shenzhen looked like in 1979, or what uh, you know what Shanghai Pudong looked like in 1990, knows that when they get focused on something, this will be done. Now. Are there all sorts of issues when it comes to uh, when it comes to human rights and politics? Of course, all that will continue, but there really isn't an equivalent plan in the United States. Let's say where I would argue it's going to be the chaos of free markets and the just kind of giant kind of private investments that will really be driving a lot of the the change, and it certainly won't be coming from the federal government. Um, Europe is kind of in between, um, where they do have their own kind of, you know, taxonomy uh, of how rules and regulations about how they're going to get at it. Um, so there, they are, there are kind of, each, each region is developing its own way of approaching it. Um, so we'll see if hopefully there will be some sort of synergy between all of it. Okay. Actually, let's, and let's use that as a as a as a pivot into kind of the third topic that we wanted to cover which is um you kind of talked about there about kind of unfettered capital markets in the u.s is going to drive it rather than kind of you know a top-down government policy right and i think here we've got you and i might have slightly divergent views on Mm -hmm. the impact that that right the private capital is really Mm -hmm. having at the Mm -hmm. moment so Mm -hmm. why don't you go first well, first of all, it's it's not just the United States. Of course, it's Europe, it's Asia, everywhere. There, look, there is, you know, I think the other big, big announcement that came out was when Mark Carney said that 450 financial institutions are going to pledge at least 130 trillion in, in total private capital to be allocated, you know, over the next 20 to 30 years. That's a big shift. Um, so that's, that's one area we can discuss. Um, it, there has been absolutely... A, uh, this is probably the first year ever where there's more money being invested in renewable energy than fossil fuel energy. The cost of capital 
for fossil fuel investments is going up, the cost of capital for, for renewable energy is going down. And then the third area that's really kind of interesting is this, there's this, been this alphabet soup, and I can't even get into all the different definitions, that, but they're all around standards, um, TCFD, FASB, SASB, you name it, all sorts of global standards and definitions um, around kind of how you measure, how you account, how you uh, define, like what does carbonization really mean to Malaysia? I bet you it's different than what carbonization means in Germany. So there's been huge efforts um, by the international community and particularly companies who are driving this, frankly, to kind of begin to create, I don't wanna call it the WTO of climate, but something like it, where there are enough standards out there that we can begin to at least do contracts and, and have definitions and discussions and deals with a, with a common set of, of, of a glossary of, of, of kind of definitions. That is a kind of a, that's a big change. Um, it's still all private and it would, in theory, it should be regulated by, by, you know, by, by governments. But for the moment, um, this reallocation of capital, the largest ever, uh, and the beginning to have standards uh, is I think progress from even nine months ago. Yeah, I think that that's, I guess where we diff, uh, the, 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 the slightly different perspective that I have, I agree with the, the importance of having a glossary, a kind of, you know, mm -hmm. set of taxonomic terms that everyone can agree on and then having some, the, I think the difference though that I see right now is that I don't see investors being prepared to accept any reduction in yield in response to sustainable investments. And I don't see consumers being prepared to pay any higher prices in return for in return for sustainable products or services that they're that they're that they're taking. And until that, until those two things, either of those two things either change because behavior really changes or they sort of get, they change because they sort of get legislated in one form or another. Until then, so much of the money that is being invested is sort of chasing subsidies. And, you know, you, you take the, the, you know, the, 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 the stratospheric ascent of Tesla in terms of you know, market domination in turn, and there, there was a fantastic piece in the Financial Times today, a big piece talking about how Tesla is kind of, that the trade in options in Tesla is more than the entire trade in all other options on the US market. And it's six times the trade that goes to get, that takes place in all stocks in the UK. I mean, it is just, it's dominated. And yet that's a company that is based entirely upon government subsidies whether it's the sale of the of the of the um uh, uh you know the carbon offset credits that they have whether it's the subsidies that were given for people purchasing electric vehicles all of these things i mean not to say that it hasn't it hasn't generated its own commercial but the underpinning of it has been government support that is uh, that has sat there and i wonder to what extent we're going to have to carry on relying on people chasing subsidies in order to sustain the investment flows that you're talking about at the moment, because left to their own devices, 
investors are not accepting a lower return from sustainable assets and consumers are not prepared to pay a higher price for consumers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's break that into three parts. Um, I actually think that increasingly there is a green premium um, and that, um, for example, green bonds investors can be, can start to get some pretty, pretty good yields. I think the amount of private capital going into non-subsidy deals is increasing. So climate funds raised 130 billion. Um, there's what 501 billion going to renewable energy, EVs, you know, venture funds. You know, there's climate tech funds invested 49 billion. A lot of that I don't think have anything to do with subsidies. Um, so I think the 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 there people are chasing a lot of new and interesting um, uh, kind of climate renewable energy uh, investing. I would almost argue and agree with you that there is actually a climate potential for a climate green bubble. And I think there is so much private capital out there looking for so much, for so many new sustainable investments or green investments or climate investments, or green energy investment, whatever you want to call it, um, that that is creating a kind of a, a bubble. People are paying premium prices for anything that says smack sustainability um, for obvious reasons. They, they, they do believe in it. They believe in the growth. They see the growth, but they also know that it, it looks great on their, you know, when, when it comes to their, their, their marketing and their public relations. Um, you're also seeing, you know, great asset sales. So, you know, public market fossil fuel assets are being sold into private markets, which is another, another issue. So that to me is kind of the, the private market side. Um, the, the public side is really interesting. And this is where the rubber heats, you know, hits the road and where we don't, we are not prepared almost any culture to really sacrifice at any point for anything. And some of the advan uh, you know, some of the things that have happened just in the last two and a half weeks show that. So the, obviously the, the, a year and a half ago, the, the, the movement in France, the, the yellow jaune, you know, vest thing, where uh, where they people rebelled against the rise of gas prices in the United States this week, uh, you know, Biden released fossil fuel from the petroleum reserve in a hope to bring down the price of gas, which is of course infuriating America. Talk about irony, right? Same week that he talked about, you know, COP twenty six. So we have reached a point now where we know that the public simply is not ready to sacrifice on any level particularly when it comes to energy. So whether that's gas heaters in, in, in Britain, whether that's you know, gas in, in, in Germany, coal in China and India, coal in Indonesia, and of course, you know, got the, the, the blessed American truck and car. So I, I, I think that governments now recognize that, I, don't, I think they're in a bit of a, a, a dilemma. I think a place like China, which has extraordinarily tough authoritarian rules can probably just do it, but that won't be the case in, in Europe or the United States or other democracies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which will start to then raise some, you know, some very interesting, because if the, if the planet continues on the trajectory of climate change that it's on at the moment, it will become increasingly pointed the discussion about the extent to which people are prepared to trade kind of um 
local local liberty for 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 planet survivability. I think that's the at the very heart of the issue. Um, and what you're going to just see is that the increasing cost of climate through extreme weather will um, will increasingly weigh in on on economies. But what will also be happening is that as people recognize that not enough is being done, there's going to be uh, movements afoot to do uh, kind of to take more take tougher rules. And I think the easiest one to understand is the just the simple nature of supply and demand. So if you're cutting back fossil fuel supply while demand is going up, even though there is huge amounts of renewables coming online, there's also huge amounts of new demand coming from the emerging you know, markets of the world. So you're cutting back the cost, or you're raising the cost of investment when it comes to you know, fossil fuel production, um, and which is you know, you know, reducing the amount of investment that's going to go into it. And what's going to happen is that the price is going to continue to rise through ups and downs until you've reached that equilibrium where, where renewable energy will somehow take on and become the, you know, a cheaper source of power. But I don't see that happening in the next, you know, five to 10 years. And to me, you'll have the increasing level of, of climate extreme weather and the cost of that, the increasing kind of urgency to act by governments um, and the kind of the, the fact that we aren't, that the cost of living when it comes to energy is going to be going up. That, that to me is a, is a very kind of dangerous and toxic mix. And that's what we're going to have to be uh, dealing with. And fundamentally, it does get down to how we organize ourselves as humans, whether we want to be more authoritarian, less authoritarian. You know, do you want to have uh, innovation and creativity and all that that's sparked by, you know, freedom and democracy? Or do you want to have rules down, top down, Chinese-like authoritarianism? Well, you know, this is climate is kind of forcing all of this to come together at this point. Absolutely. Peter, as ever, fantastic to chat. Um, Henry, we're going to throw it back to you now. If uh, you have any um, any questions that came in or uh, anything else that you want us to cover. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Tom. And thank you, Peter. Yeah, I, I do have a question which sort of evolves on from what you were just discussing in sort of the, the cost of climate action. You know, we're currently seeing commodity prices at you know, the highest levels they've been in, in decades. And we're seeing this sort of new phenomenon of greenflation, um, you know, where, you know, we're seeing sort of huge levels of inflation as a result of rising demand for all these renewable energy materials. And just sort of your thoughts on, on how we balance the short term um, inflatory costs of climate action versus our long term goals. and and sort of maybe just sort of expand on that as you were just mentioning well i think i think hopefully markets will will kind of take care of that um and generally it's what's driving most energy demand is is, is probably as much about a post-covid recovery um you know and so i don't think it's all all of a sudden happening just because you know the reduction of, of energy investing however you have to understand we went through a kind of a a kind of fossil fuel energy crash right at the beginning of of, uh, of COVID, which really did stop, particularly in the United States, investment in its kind of in its tracks. The question going forward is, 
and getting back to Tom's point around energy intensity is kind of how are we going to balance the continuing use of fossil fuel and fossil fuel investment while at the same time kind of, you know, really, you know, trying to shift that economy to, to kind of a renewable, to renewable energy. The um, part of the part of the problem is that much of the world has been focused on um, reducing energy demand, which is good. And that's what all the kind of the, the, the country targets, but there's no efforts. And, and the reason why is, is because of the markets. There's no efforts to actually take fossil fuel offline. I mean, there have been in coal, for example, but actually there's more fossil fuel than ever that's going online. Now that's creating obviously huge politi political angst, particularly in democracies. Um, it's obviously creating huge pollution problems in places like India and China. Um, but it's also, um, it's also going to be at the source of a lot of the kind of government rulemaking and regulating. So getting that balance right and, you know, getting, getting people to maybe take it in a way that isn't as extreme as, say, environmentalists want, but also isn't as kind of obstructionist as maybe the traditional fossil fuel companies want. And frankly, is it, the, is it a plan like China or Europe? Who knows? But that to me is the, uh, is the real crux of what's gonna to have to happen over the next five years. Yeah, I would just add to that a little comment that I think that, I think one of the things we're gonna to have to, particularly in the, you know, the European, US, the developed economies of the world, we're probably gonna to have to accept that there needs to be just flat out less consumption that there needs to be, you know, to pick, you know, three simple examples or three sort of obvious examples. You know, there needs to be less cheap flights to, to, you know, just because you fancy doing something that, you know, our parents or grandparents never thought about doing it, popping over to Prague for a weekend, which is enabled by, you know, the, 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 uh, the rise of budget airlines. That's that sort of thing at the margin is going to have to start to come to an end. There just needs to be less of that sort of consumption. There needs to be less of the fast fashion consumption. The idea that you buy an outfit for 15 quid on ASOS, wear it one night, and then it goes into, into, into a landfill. That's got to, that's going to have to come to an end as well. And also around the, you know, keep in mind that we have, I, I, I don't know what the, the exact proportion are, but there's, there's, a multiple of the number of people in the world that are now suffering from obesity than are suffering from, you know, malnutrition. That that we've we've got a we've got a world in which people are consuming too much food, and that again, as we if we start to scale that back, we can address health issues. And also, I mean, the, uh, agriculture is certainly one of the top three producers of. You know, the three most impactful carbon footprint industries in the world. We can start to scale that back. But again, that's, that's it, all of these things, you know, set up a conflict with an amount of the vested interest that exists both politically and commercially around the fact we consume ever more. And we have to yeah. kind of start to pull that back into reverse and understand it needs to be a lower level of higher quality consumption that... And that may actually be facilitated by some greater inflationary pressures that allow resources to be better allocated across the economy. Yeah, and it's funny, well, you and I talked at the end of lunch about that, that there are the two polar 
kind of things that's the individual versus the ultimately the government and those, how the, the balance between the two of those is right. You know, it's interesting um, just because it is Thanksgiving here in the United States. I did a quick look. Uh, the carbon footprint of a traditional Thanksgiving dinner is 103 pounds, which is the equivalent of charging your phone 5,000 times or driving your car 130 miles. However, and this is, this is where it gets tricky, right? If you took the turkey and the, and the stuffing out of the carbon equation, you reduce it by 80%. Yeah. So how many Americans you know, are willing to say, well, I'll have a Thanksgiving feast, but without a turkey? The other thing to remember, um, and there, when I looked at that carbon hockey stick carbon increase, most of the consumption, most of the increase really follows, really started in 1980 when both the United States and had changes in, and China had changes in government, both with Reagan coming in and with uh, Deng Xiaoping, both of them led to kind of an extraordinary surge of, of, of consumption because China created the cheapest everything in the world and America consumed almost everything in the world. There was a day where you used to have three tennis balls to play tennis. Now you have 30 or 40 tennis balls just kind of hitting around. That kind of um, consumption is new. As I said, it, it certainly wasn't happening uh, prior to you know, World War II and during the Depression. So this concept that we've always been consuming at the levels that we are is, is simply wrong. It's really only happened since 1980. So I, it means that if we can change our, we can easily change our consumption habits. Um, and the hope is that you can. The flip side is don't, that's not an excuse for companies and governments to kind of get them off the hook to do their job, which is to ensure that whatever they're producing and making is kind of hitting kind of these carbon negative uh, kind of targets. So I think it's it's really that balance between the individual and its how they consume and companies and governments and investors and bankers and how they're going to kind of you know do their job to uh, to get to this kind of net zero economy. Well, thank you very much, both. I think that, that brings us to a close. So thank you. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, uh, Todd, for, for joining us today. Um, and we, we look forward to, to catching up with you soon. So thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Henry. Thanks, All Peter. Right. Talk soon. Bye See now. Bye-bye.